Morning Church, I'm going to invite you to turn with me for the last time, at least in this series, to the Gospel of Mark. For those of you that are visiting with us, we, for months now, starting in January of 2020, started a series where we've journeyed through the Gospel of Mark. We started this series in a a simpler time. We started this series in a time that we certainly didn't feel the full weight of the implications of COVID-19. Worship looked very different. The way we sat, mass, none of that was upon any of our minds at that time. I, if I could go back, I would put a lot of money into Charmin toilet paper uh, if I could. Uh, I had no idea that I needed to stockpile bounty paper towels when we started this series. None of us in this room understood the full weight of implications of what this was going to look like for schools and homeschooling for so many people. And, and, and so needless to say, you know this, that this has been a, a uh, unprecedented, we hear that word just so often, unprecedented in 2020, and our companion through the journey where we did not know what was around the curve, and, and there's still many uncertainties before us, our journey through this time has been the gospel writer, Mark. And we come now to the two final days where Mark narrates for us the Holy Week experience as he gives it to us. We, we have two days, two days of contrast, two, two dichotomies in many respects. The dichotomy of, of the bleakness of Friday in contrast to the, to the joyful celebration of that Easter Sunday. Two days that are days that intersect your life and they're days that intersect my life. The first day that we see is Friday a day where all hope seems to be lost. Join, we, join me as, as we read together, starting in verse 42 of Mark 15. It's Friday. All hope seems lost. And when the evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died and summoned the centurion. He asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. He rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Here we have the Friday of the greatest week in all of human history. And it's interesting because if you were narrating this account here, you would, if you were to make this story up, who would you have coming before Pilate demanding the body of Jesus? Certainly you'd have one of the disciples, right? Maybe this would be Peter's redemption. You'd have Peter show up and say, Pilate, I demand the body of Jesus. He will not die just as a lowly criminal here. I will bury him with, with dignity. But you shouldn't be surprised that here we have that Friday where all hope seems to be lost. Here we have Mark introducing to us 
For the first time in his gospel account, Joseph of Arimathea, we don't, have, we don't have Peter, James, and John who have been with him at the Mount of Transfiguration. We don't have Peter, James, and John that have been with him at the Garden of Gethsemane. They have cowered in fear. They have fled in fear. And so here we have the introduction of somebody that really we should ask as we're reading along the gospel of Mark, who is this guy? Where did he come from? We've been, we've been walking with you, Mark, for 15 chapters, and now you're introducing this guy? Joseph of Arimathea, he gives us a little information about him. He tells us that he's a prominent member of the ruling council, the 70. He's waiting for the kingdom of God. He would have been responsible and among the group of people that would have pled with Pilate to crucify Jesus. He's waiting for the kingdom of God, which means that he longs for the Messiah to come and to institute his reign upon earth. He is longing for all things to be made new in his understanding as a pious Jewish man. Luke kind of fleshes out a little bit of his story. In Luke chapter 23, we read he is a good and an upright man. Luke tells us that he dissents against the rest of the council. So he, in the midst of Jesus, sees something about him and says he does not deserve crucifixion. He shouldn't die, but he cannot hold back the events of, of providential history. He cannot hold back the events that go before him. So he is a believer of Jesus, and he has followed Jesus. We can imagine from a distance, but it's something about his death. Maybe it was the exemplary nature of his death. Maybe it was the courage that he saw in Jesus. But he throws caution to the wind. He goes to Pilate, and he says, I need his body. Now, this was a courageous act, and it's easy for us to miss how courageous it was for Joseph, a member of the ruling council, to go to Pilate, who just a few hours ago would have granted to his council the ability for Jesus to be crucified. Now this man is saying, give me his body. He is siding with Jesus. He could be uh, called a traitor. He could have been turned in. It is not an understatement to say or an overstatement to say that he by default, is casting all of his career before Pilate with this decision. He is saying, my livelihood, come what may, I am putting my cards down, and I am a follower of Jesus. Now, what does he have to gain? Jesus is dead. He's going to get the body. What happened in that day if, 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 if Joseph doesn't go to get the body is, is, that, is that Pilate would have a Roman soldier that would pull him off of the cross and bury Jesus in an unmarked grave fit for a criminal. And Joseph says, I, I will not have it. Do you see what Joseph does? When Friday seems dark, when Friday seems dim, when Friday seems as if all hope is lost, when all that, that Joseph understands in that moment is hopeless before him, what Joseph does in that moment is that he does the next right thing that he knows to do. It's instructive. It's instructive because none of you in the sanctuary this morning are going to experience the circumstances that Joseph experiences as he, as a follower of Jesus, sees Jesus and he's dead. You're not going to be called to, to bury Jesus. But the, the circumstances of Friday, they can intersect your life. There, there can be days where the darkness 
and the bleakness of life. It comes upon you, and it seems in that moment that, that all hope is lost in that moment. That is, my friends, that is, that is Friday. It only takes a second. It's amazing. It, it only takes a few seconds for a few words to take your right side up and turn it upside down. It's a phone call that wakes you out of the bed. In just a few sentences, you realize it's Friday. Sometimes it's just a normal checkup that the doctor says, hey, I want you to go to the specialist, and you have a consultation with the specialist, and the specialist comes back, and that consultation that started with a normal checkup ends up as a dire diagnosis, and just in a few moments, your right side up life is twisted upside down, and you realize that it might be Monday when you receive that news, but it is Friday. In the darkness of that moment, it's almost like a sucker punch that knocks the wind out of you. You never saw it coming. It can happen. It does happen to every one of us that are in this sanctuary. The details are different, but it does happen. Now, what do we do in that moment where everything seems upside down? We follow the path of Joseph, who does the next right thing that he knows to do. When you're in your Friday, that next right thing to do is always to pray. It's never in that moment to try to figure out what the next five years is going to look like, the next ten years will look like. It's never to feel the pressure to answer all the questions that you think that you have to answer in that moment on Friday. It is to realize in that moment that you lean into community and you ask God, what is the next right thing that I need to do? Now, most of us, don't live even a tiny bit of our life in those sucker punch moments. Most of us don't. But all of us will come alongside of people, friends and family members, that receive that news and we realize it, it's Friday for them. And what do we do in that moment? Well, well, we too, as the body of Christ, we're called to pray and ask God to help us in that moment know what is the next right thing that I need to do. And you know what the answer could be to that, that question? It could, it could be a million things. Some, sometimes it is to call. Sometimes it's to write a card. Sometimes it is to get in your vehicle and knock on the door and sit with that person that has received devastating news. Sometimes it's to go to the hospital and hold the hand of a loved one. Sometimes it is to pull out a chainsaw, get into your vehicle, and see that tree limb that just fell on the top of your friend's house and help them get it off the roof. So you see that the next right thing can look like, well, it can look like a million next steps. But there's always a step. I think sometimes the temptation in those moments is to, to, to be paralyzed, paralyzed by Friday, paralyzed by indecision, paralyzed of fear of making the wrong step. There's always the next right step to take on Friday. It's Friday and all hope seems lost, but praise God, 
that Mark's gospel doesn't end in chapter 15. Praise God that Mark's gospel doesn't end with the period of Friday. Praise God that we have Sunday where eternal hope is found before us. And it is found in the story of three women who will come to the tomb. And notice what they're doing. Well, read with me in Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, they bought spices so that they may go and anoint him. What is verse 1? These three women are doing the next right thing that they know to do. They're anointing Jesus' body. And then verse 2, and very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were, understatement of the gospel, they were alarmed. And he said to them, don't be alarmed. You see Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples, not just the disciples, but tell the disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. Yes, that Peter who three times denied Jesus just a few hours earlier, a few days earlier. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment has seized them. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The final portrait, again, is not Peter, James, and John coming to the tomb, but it is these three first missionaries, the, the three first evangelists of the resurrection of Jesus is Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, who come not with a hop in the step that m early morning. They're, they're not humming because he lives, I can face tomorrow. They're, they're not in this moment thinking anything like what they're going to experience. Their hope has been dashed. They're grieving. It might be Sunday morning, but, but it feels like Friday for these three women here. There's no anticipation of what they're going to encounter. They think the lifeless corpse of Jesus is going to be before them. You see it in the conversation. They begin to ask each other, hey, look, do we even know how we're going to roll away the stone? Has anybody even thought about this? They're overwhelmed with grief in this moment. They show up, and what they see that shows them something's not right is that the stone in front of the tomb has been rolled away in this moment. I would imagine, and you could imagine, that their first thought isn't, he's alive, but who has stolen the body? What criminals, the indignity of it all, he cannot even have a proper burial. They come in, the first encounter they have, we read in verse 5, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. That word alarm is the only time in the New Testament it's used. Only time, right here. It means a strong fear, agitation. They were terrified. 
Luke's gospel fleshes this out. This isn't a young man, just a random person that happens into the empty tomb, but rather he is an angel of the Lord. Luke tells us that his clothing is like lightning in this moment, and he says what angels have to say every time they have an encounter in the New Testament is what? Two words. Fear not. Fear not. Fear not. They were terrified. There's nothing about this that's commonplace. Everything about this Sunday morning resurrection encounter is absolutely exceptional. Verse 6, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Notice here what the angel doesn't do. The, the angel doesn't meet them outside of the tomb. He doesn't meet them beside the stone that had covered the entrance of the tomb and say, hey, ladies, take my word for it. He's not here. Now, what does he say? He says, look with your own eyes. See where they laid him. I want you to testify with your very eyes that he is not here. You see, the angel of the Lord knew that for 2,000 years, people would begin to wonder, did this really happen? And the first witnesses of the empty tomb were three women who in this moment looked with their very eyes and did not see a body that was there. It, it gives us insight into the historical nature of the resurrection of Jesus. It tells us one of the reasons that we can trust in the veracity of the resurrection of Jesus. Why? Because the body was never produced. Let's just say Let's just say the body was stolen. And then we begin to see, as the Acts of the Apostles says, the way, and the way begins to grow, and it begins to transform the world. It's in that moment that you can imagine the Jewish authorities pull out the lifeless corpse of Jesus and say, here he is! This will shut them up. This will silence their preaching. But they never do that. Why? Because they don't have the body. Why? Because Jesus walked out of that tomb alive and well. He is resurrected. That's one reason that we know of the historical nature of the resurrection. It's an empty tomb, a second nature. Second reason that we know is the post-resurrection encounters and experiences in the other gospel accounts. You have story after story of Jesus showing up, walking with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Talking with the disciples having a conversation with Peter, eating fish over a charcoal fire. When they're writing these gospel accounts, when they're writing the letters that we know to be the New Testament letters, there were people that were alive who had experienced seeing Jesus with their own two eyes after he was crucified. Paul tells us this when he's writing a church to the church in Corinth. He comes to the 15th chapter and he says, if you don't take my word for it, there are 500 people that saw Jesus alive. Do you, do you understand what Paul is saying here? He is saying, if you want to take a deposition of all of the witnesses who saw Jesus, who was crucified and then has been resurrected, you've got to call in exhibit A, Person number one, you ask them, hey, what happened with Jesus? I tell you, he was crucified, he was dead and buried, but he's alive. I saw him with my two eyes. You come to the next person. 
Tell us about Jesus. He was crucified. He was dead. He was buried. But he was alive. I saw him with my two eyes. You bring in the third person. Tell us about Jesus. He was crucified. He was dead. He was buried. But I saw him with my two eyes. Do you see the redundancy? Person 100, person 200, person 300. We have hundreds of hours of testimony right here in God's word that hints at the historical nature of the gospel truth that he is alive. That's not it. That's not it. There's even more. You see, those early absences of Peter, James, and John. Here at the end of chapter 15, here at the beginning of chapter 16, the reason they're not here is because they've cowered in fear. They've fled in fear. They're only looking after themselves. They believe that all hope is lost. So it's not surprising to us when they ask Peter there at the trial, do you know this guy? He says, no, 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 I don't know. No, I think you do. I think you're one of of his disciples. No, I I assure you I'm not. The third time he denies him so emphatically and then we turn just a few weeks later after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus and there before the crowds it is Peter who stands up, the very one who has denied Jesus who stands up and proclaims he was dead, buried, crucified for our sins and he is alive. All of the disciples, except for one, experienced a martyr's death. Do you know that? 11 out of 12 die for their faith. Peter, the very proclaimer there at Pentecost, he is crucified, but he says to his executors, I am not willing to die as my Savior. And he's crucified upside down. The life change of those early disciples is another reason that I know that this happened. I know it more than anything else that I can hold my faith to. This I believe. It's in the Word of God. But I believe it because I've seen the life change, not of those disciples, but the disciples around me. The followers of Jesus, through the resurrection power, has captured their lives and they've never been the same after. I love the way that these three ladies are given the task to go and to share that news of the resurrection of Jesus. And in this wonderful Jesus Storybook Bible, I love the way that Sally Lloyd-Jones sort of uh, gives us this, this whimsy and rhythm to that first uh, evangelistic calling as she talks about Mary. L- listen, I've always loved reading this to my boys. My boys are a little too old for this right now. But if you have preschoolers here and you're reading the Bible to them, Sally Lloyd-Jones, the Jesus Storybook Bible, is just a wonderful, wonderful um, Bible, to children's Bible to, to be able to read to them. Just listen to how she talks about this, this moment. Mary ran and ran all the way to the city. She had never run so fast or so far in all of her life. She felt that she could have run forever. She didn't even feel like her feet touched the ground. The sun seemed to be dancing and gleaming and bounding across the sky, racing with her and shining brighter than she could have ever remember in the clear, fresh air. And it seemed to her that morning as she ran, almost as if the whole world had been made anew, almost as if the whole world was singing for joy, the trees, 
tiny sounds in the grass, the birds, her heart. Was God really making sad, everything sad, come untrue? Was God really making everything sad come untrue? Was he making even death come untrue? She couldn't wait to tell Jesus' friends. They won't believe it. She laughed. She was right, of course. The first evangelist to go to the disciples announces the news of the resurrection of Jesus. And the meaning of it is simply this, that he is alive. And because he's alive, he's defeated death. Because he's alive, he's defeated sin. Because he's alive, we have hope. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living because he lives. That's not just a truth for 2,000 years ago. It is a truth for your life today. It's a truth for my life today. The power of the resurrection that is still alive and well to transform every sad thing that we experience that through the resurrection, you follower of Jesus will come untrue. Sally Lloyd-Jones is, is alluding to the last book in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Return of the King, and there is Sam. He's defeated. Uh, the, the ring has gone into Mount Doom. All things have, have, have been redeemed in that moment, and he, he wakes up, and he sees his friends around him. The first person that he sees is Gandalf, and he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? This is the hope of the resurrection. That every experience on Friday, every Friday darkness, every Friday pain, every Friday grief, through the power of the resurrection, is not just wiped away, but it will come untrue. Seven years ago, I got a phone call. I still vividly remember. I was in the backyard. My three boys were there. They were playing. My youngest child was not even two, so he was toddling around. I remember vividly what they were doing because what I was hearing on the phone was in such stark contrast to the joy that they experienced sliding down a slide and pushing each other and, and playing in the backyard on the swing set there. And I remember my mom telling me the news as I sat there and I was watching them, and it was news I just really couldn't even comprehend in my mind. She said, David, you need to hear what I'm saying. Your brother, Michael, who at that time was 32, had been found dead. Piercing news. I received that phone call seven years ago on Good Friday. And you and I loaded up the boys and we drove back to my hometown to be able to be with my mom, to comfort my mom, to be with my dad, to be able to make funeral preparations that Easter weekend. And I so vividly remember that Sunday morning getting up really early and saying, I just need to get out of the house. And I didn't want to go to my home church because I was so known there and it was so painful to be able to walk into that, that place and that moment of, of grief that I felt. So I, I went, I remember to a church where I thought uh, one criteria, nobody would know my name and nobody would be glad that I came. 
I sat in the very back row, and, and I watched with tears in my eyes as, as people sang of the power of the resurrection, and what they were singing of felt, felt so foreign to me. They were singing of Sunday hope, and I was in the midst of Friday grief. They were singing of the power of the resurrection, and in that moment, I could only feel the depth of death as a thief. preacher stood up to preach and he preached a powerful resurrection sermon and he began to talk about examples of the power of the resurrection for your life and for my life and I so vividly remember him saying there's some of you that this last year has been a year of loss for you but you need to hear the power of the resurrection over even the difficulties of your financial life there's some of you that have, that have lost your career this past year, but you need to hear that Christ is risen and the power of the resurrection is for you even when you don't know what you're going to do with your career. There's some of you in this sanctuary, he said, that have experienced the, the dire diagnosis and you don't know what is before you, but you need to hear that Christ is risen and the power of the resurrection. And I knew where he was going, and I, and I almost was screaming out to him from the back row without verbally saying anything. No, 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 no. But he kept on and, and he said, there's some of you here that have lost someone and you've lost a loved one and you're in the midst of grief, you're in the midst of pain, you're in the midst of sorrow and you need to hear that Christ is alive and he is your hope. But I, I didn't want to believe it in that moment because I knew my brother was a follower of Jesus. I knew where he was, but in that moment, the Friday grief had overcome me. And I wanted, to, I wanted to wallow in Friday. I wanted to stay in Friday. I wanted to say, no, I'm not going to say this. And he, and he kept on. And he said, for 2,000 years, the church has gathered. And on Easter Sunday, they have said, Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. So he said, Christ is risen. And the church, with joyful acclamation, said, he's risen indeed. But I sat in absolute silence. Christ is risen, but it was, it was as if the Holy Spirit, with that simple refrain that is earth-shattering, remind me in that moment that because Christ is risen, he's risen indeed, so my brother, who would not walk on this earth ever again with me, the, the memories that we had to make with one another that were robbed forever would be replaced with memories that we had in eternity together. It was almost as if the Holy Spirit was speaking to my heart. Every sad thing will be made untrue. And it was in that moment, with tears in my eyes, I began to realize, again, the hope of the gospel, again, the hope of the resurrection, that while my brother was not here, he was with the Lord, healed and whole. And once again, I will see him and walk with him in glory. And so the pastor said in that moment, Christ is risen and, and with feeblest of breath that I had. I said, he's risen indeed. He's risen indeed. 
And then he said it again, Christ is risen. And I looked around, and I could see tears in the eyes of people around me. I saw tears flowing down my own cheeks, and I stood with them, and I said, Christ is risen. He's risen indeed, and I offer it to you, church, because there are those of you in this sanctuary that you're in the midst of Friday, you're headed to Friday, or you've come out of Friday. And no matter the darkness of Friday, no matter the bleakness of Friday, no matter the hurt of Friday, no matter the pain of Friday, no matter the tears that flow down your cheeks in the midst of the hellish experiences of life, what we know as followers of Jesus is that in Christ, Jesus, through his resurrection, has defeated death. He's defeated sin. He's defeated hell itself. And we have hope. So I ask you, church, say with me, Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. So it is God. So it is God. That through the power of the resurrection, we have hope. Through the power of the resurrection, we have forgiveness of sin. Through the power of the resurrection, we have hope even in the face of death. Through the power of the resurrection, no, no Friday that comes our way, no Friday that comes our way can be the end of our story in you. We thank you for the redemption of resurrection on Sunday. We thank you that in Christ we have hope, even in the midst of death, even in the midst of the sin that so easily entangles us, to be reminded that every sad thing that happens in our life, in and through you, will one day, for an eternity, become untrue. You will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Our pains will forevermore be praised. Disease will be dropped and will be endless doxology. Our hope for today is your resurrection. We thank you for who you are and what you've done on our behalf. Give us hope as we walk these roads that so often lead us to the Fridays of life. May we be reminded that it might be Friday. But Sunday's coming. It's in your name we pray.